my key stakeholders were the five primary shareholders and their motivations and their plans had different goals, I should say, at the end of the year compared to in the public sector where it's nobody's money that you're playing with, but you have to answer to everybody. Here, it's not five stakeholders, it's all the taxpayers. So it's my neighbors, it's your neighbors, it's anybody that pays California income tax is somebody that I am accountable to as a fiscal steward. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book, Cost Accounting for Dummies, and I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stamply. And joining us today is Sharuz Rupavar, the CFO of Cal Poly Humboldt. And Cal Poly Humboldt is a university with 5,700 students in Northern California. Sharuz, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. I'm, I'm truly excited. And if I could commend you on writing the book for Cost Accounting for Dummies, uh, I really wish it came out when I was an undergrad. Really would have helped me. Oh, thank you. It didn't come out until 2013. And I guess we should start by explaining who's over your right shoulder. Oh, so we've got uh, Sasquatch on my Zoom background. He is a figure here in in this northern part of California, and uh, there's some beliefs about his existence. So it's part of the culture up here. It's really great. Okay. It may be his first appearance on our podcast, which is exciting. So we're excited to have you here. Tell us a little bit about what you do in your background. Yeah. So I'm currently the vice president of finance and administration at Cal Poly Humboldt. And Cal Poly Humboldt has recently become Cal Poly. We're the third Cal Poly in the state of California, the only one in Northern California. We've been around for quite some time. I recently joined about a year ago. And through my division of academic, I'm sorry, (laughs) through my division of administrative affairs, I oversee accounting, finance, budget, the, the traditional CFO roles, and then it expands a bit more in higher ed with specialties required for, for managing and running the facilities management department, construction, security, and police force. Yeah, that's a big job, and you're wearing a lot of hats. To expand on what you just said, tell us about your team structure, the size of your team, and how that's composed. I've got a great team of direct reports, all the department heads. It's about eight department heads report directly to me. And then through them, indirectly, my division is a couple hundred people. And that includes everybody through facilities and grounds, as well as uh, janitorial, really the bulk of it in facilities management. And then the rest of it is back-end services, cashiers, student check disbursement, helping them with financing and getting loans or stipends during their their time here, working hand-in-hand with financial aid. So we are the, the backbone I would say, of of a higher education institution. And we're just uh, here to support the students, first and foremost, and make sure that the bills get paid and the lights stay on. Yeah, fantastic. 
What do you, in a traditional private company, we talk about reporting to a board, but if you could give us some idea of who you report to, would it be a board of regions in a university setting? So the California State University System has a board of trustees. Trustees. And they meet, I believe, every other month. And it is uh, a, a large group. Several of them are, or the majority of them are gubernatorial appointees. Okay. Uh, and they serve for set terms. Uh, so it's not an elected board, but it is an appointed board. And then there's some seats on there that, that are generally elected by some of the unions. And so faculty representation, student representation is also on the board. Here uh, in this system, it's pretty independent for what the, the universities are allowed to do on their own with small limitations of what we need to get to the board and the chancellor's office, which oversees all 23 Cal States for authorization. And, and it's really the, the big ticket items entering into large contracts or construction deals or things that are things that could break the bank. We really need to run by them. So it's a little bit different than on the private sector where I was in, in private for profit higher ed prior to coming public. My key stakeholders were the five primary shareholders and 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 their motivations and their plans were had different intentions at the end of the year. Uh-huh different goals, I should say, at the end of the year compared to in the public sector where it's nobody's money that you're playing with, but you have to answer to everybody. So here it's not five stakeholders, it's all the taxpayers. So it's my neighbors, it's your neighbors, it's anybody that pays California income tax is somebody that I am accountable to as a fiscal steward. Yeah. Complete change from a private enterprise. If you could tell us about your tech stack and maybe what unique tools you might use in your setting that are specific to your industry. Yeah. So being in higher ed, it is fairly unique in what we use compared to what another CFO may. Here, we're heavy set on PeopleSoft and sub products that are either through third parties or through PeopleSoft for various things. So our financial services, accounting software, and human resources systems, they all run through PeopleSoft and a subsidiary or I'm sorry, a modular add-on or a third party that's built and integrated into PeopleSoft. So probably the system that the vast majority of large universities in the country use. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to shift gears and ask a couple of questions that we wrote down at the beginning. You spent the majority of your career in higher education what unique challenges or differences do you find in the CFO role at a higher education institution versus other CFO roles? What's different? I would say the CFO in higher ed is also required to be entrepreneurial and innovative. Today's higher ed is an evolving landscape of technology, evolving landscape of what the Gen Z desire in their educational model. And Education in itself, higher ed, has been using the traditional model of 150 years of the semester system. So our students today are not the same ones from 150 years ago. So we really need to adapt and deliver more services to make that college-going experience worthwhile for the students and memorable. I'm sure all of us can think back to those amazing times we had in undergrad or grad school And that was in part due to somebody in administration investing in innovative ways to make it 
more enjoyable for students, whether it's investing in an incubator for student startups or investing in student mental health services and getting those students the the counseling that they need that has gone unaddressed for so long where the previous thought was mental health is a personal concern and it's a family matter and the school shouldn't be involved. But that's not the case. We've got thousands of students here and their parents relying on us to, to make sure they stay healthy, both mentally and physically, and they are successful in school. And part of that is mental health services to get them counseling services. Suicide and self-harm are the within the top three of causes of death for college students. It is a shocking statistic and something that it is, it needs to be brought more forward. And it takes that innovation and an entrepreneurial spirit to try and find just because it's not going to have a direct impact on my return on investment, it's going to have an indirect impact because my retention rates are going to go up. I'm going to have more right. students successfully graduate. And the word of mouth about their experience here is going to lead to future enrollment. Yeah, that's such a big issue. I have three kids. My youngest is a college senior. And we were having a discussion over the holidays that literally you cannot get in to see a therapist because there are so many kids using the service. It happens to be through the medical facility on campus, but they are completely full. So I totally get what you need, what you mean there. The same thing here. And that's why we've contracted out with a group that like this will be in a Zoom session or a 24-7-800 number that you can call and get somebody wow. immediately. But with a, a slight difference to just regular telemedicine for mental health that is typically counselors, these will be licensed psychiatrists that can issue you prescriptions at the local pharmacy for antidepressants and, and the like to help you be and so it's a new day for, for students in addressing mental health. And it's so much of a concern of mine and a personal passion of mine for it. I'm not even in student services. And I'm not, that's not my division. We have an excellent vice president that oversees that area. But it's, it's such a passion of mine that it's the focus of my dissertation and my doctoral program right now. Oh, is that right? Wow. What is your doctoral program? I'm currently in the educational doctorate program at USC, uh, <coughs> University of Southern California, for organizational change and leadership. Okay, that's fantastic. My oldest daughter is a psychotherapist, and she recently shifted to a completely online, completely online practice and dropped her office space, and more and more therapists are doing that. So it fits in with what you're saying. What interesting period of your career was working at the community college level? How did you find the role of CFO there different from working in a public institution versus private again, particularly at the community college level? At the community college, so I, was, I just recently left the community college to come here. So that was up until a year ago. I was the uh, CFO at Arizona Western College uh, in Yuma, Arizona. And it was a it was an eye-opening experience for me being in a community college in a rural district where there was no immediate access to higher ed other than the community college for hundreds of miles. We were what the Biden administration calls the education desert, literally and figuratively. And we, we made the best that we could with the limited funding that we had. Being in a rural district, it's relying on property taxes to fund the school like many other states. 
And those property taxes were could be dismal compared to the need of the students. And it was all about stretching the dollar. So that's where I really became a chief dollar stretcher more than a chief financial officer uh-huh. uh, and, and trying to find that bang for the buck in all of our initiatives and priorities. But it was definitely a great experience working with over there. We had our own board. So it was working directly with our elected board of directors that were locally elected. They were our neighbors and and community members. And it was just passionate people trying to make uh, an impact for the youth of the area and for a community college district that served 10,000 square miles of Arizona. It was it, it was vital for us to be successful. And that included putting out laptops for students when COVID started and so they can continue uh-huh. to be successful at home or giving them Wi-Fi, Verizon Wi-Fi hotspots so uh-huh. they can have internet because they're so isolated in some places of that county that they had no access to internet. And all the way through to making my, my parking lots Wi-Fi hubs for the students to be able to come and just park in their car with the AC on and the Arizona heat but have free Wi-Fi coming off of the buildings in the school so that they can continue to go to their classes and have Wi-Fi access. Interesting. Wow, that's creative. That's innovative. It was a feat to do, but I'm glad to say that we weren't the only one. And other schools were jumping onto it and really just making it much more accessible for students. Oh, that's great. One interesting insight you previously shared is that since COVID, your school registrations have gone from 2% online to 30% online. What has that rapid change looked like from your perspective? 30% online now. For a period of time, it was 98% online. Sure. Yeah. It's, I would say this is along the lines of, of adapting to what the Gen Z want uh-huh. for their education. And, and now we're seeing more students that don't want to have the dormitory experience and and don't want to live on campus or near campus or away from home, either because they can't afford it or because they just, they they prefer not to, and they can be just as successful in Zoom classrooms and, and earn their degree. And really what we've seen is this opens the door for us, for students that were previously limited to their immediate geographic area because they couldn't afford to move away from home. And Cal Poly Humboldt being in one of the most expensive cost of living counties uh, in the state of California and with limited housing makes it even more so difficult for those students to come up here and have to pay to live nearby. So now we're able to continue our online courses at a greater rate so that we can increase the accessibility for students and create those options. Or, And not to say that it's only online or only in person. You could do both still. You could choose to be here for a year, choose to be home for a year. And along those lines, we're also trying to make it more accommodating for students. So we are investing in building new dormitories through in our county. So we've got right now, we count them in beds, not rooms, but we've got 2,000 beds. And in the next seven years, we plan to add 2,000 more. We plan to double our enrollment or more than double our enrollment in the next seven years. So we need to find places for those students to live. Uh, And it's all the way from being approached by private developers that are saying, hey, we want to build an apartment complex for the new Cal Poly. And we say, great, I'm not going to enter into an agreement with you, but I guarantee you that population will be there to fill those apartments, Uh not just from the students, but all the new employees we're going to hire as well as we grow. So it's really that 
we're trying to create the physical accessibility, but maintaining that reality that now the student expectations have also changed and there's going to be a good portion of students that for one reason or another are going to continue their degrees online. And it shouldn't just be a model for the Apollo group anymore. It should be something that the, the public higher eds move away from that 150-year-old system to what we can deliver today. Yeah, boy, there's so much change. And we mentioned the COVID impact, and I, and I noticed on the website, I really never knew what Polytech meant, but if you could define STEM and just explain how that works into how you run your organization, how you run your school. Yeah, so up until a few weeks ago, we were Humboldt State University. There was a two-year-long process for completing what we call our prospectus to become a polytechnic. And it was presented to the board of trustees for us to be designated one of the three polytech polytechnic universities in the state of California. That's an example of one of the times we have to go to the board. It's a huge thing to change our name. Polytechnic just means we are a school that focuses on STEM and STEM being science, technology, engineering, and medics. So it, with those majors, and it's not like we became a polytechnic and then started focusing on STEM. We were already a STEM focused. Okay. School. But it was, but, and students come to us primarily for STEM in the fields of the natural sciences, environmental sciences, forestry, and oceanography. So they come to us for those natural elemental sciences. And however, we are expanding into the others. We've added 12 new programs. And for the listeners that are familiar with Humboldt, we've also added a degree in cannabis. So okay. we are, we are, we're really trying to expand that STEM opportunities for students. And in, for those that also aren't familiar with the California State University system, California Polytechnic, Pomona, and San Luis Obispo are the other two schools. And they're the two schools that actually reject the most number of applicants because they don't have capacity to serve that many students. Wow. So by also us becoming a polytechnic, we're opening the door for those students that wanted to attend a California State Polytechnic University, but could not get into one of the existing two. Now there's a third option for them to be able to apply to. Okay, great. Wow, that makes a big difference. What about organizing your day? How much time do you spend in meetings? I know there's probably no typical day with wearing so many hats, but how much of your time is spent in meetings? How do you try to, to at least structure your day before your day changes on you? One piece of advice I received early on at the first school I worked at Unitech College was to block an hour for catch-up. And so my first hour of every day is intended for me only to answer emails and catch up on voicemails and make sure that I am not the hindrance to pro progress. Okay. But then after that, it's pretty much nine hours of meetings in an eight-hour day. Okay. Uh, it's nonstop, and it can fluctuate. I've got my standing meetings with my direct reports and with the president and, and occasionally with the other vice presidents for us to be able to catch up and keep each other up to speed. But, but there's always a fire that needs to be put out. And as much as I try to be proactive and not reactive, those days, they, they sneak up on you and you're reactive for four or five days straight before you can jump back onto your proactive missions. My wife and I are both CPAs and we have lots of CFO friends and it doesn't matter what the industry is or the size of the business. Every And my wife's a CFO. Every CFO is in that same, it's very difficult not to be reactive. It's really hard to be proactive in the role. It's just really hard. 
You know, I'd add that the role has really evolved as well. You now see CFOs more in a COO role yes. than in financial advising. We have software and we have our banking relationships and we have our auditors and everybody else. And they're all really helping with the financial part of it. Sure, I'm, I'm running ratios here and there and looking at, at, at various angles, but I'm not the final count, right? I'm not doing the journal entries. I'm not doing that. Right. Right. I'm really helping with the operational activities and I'm a glorified project manager with Excel spreadsheets. So way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Uh-huh. So it's, it's the new norm. And from and like you said, I'm sure you've heard it from your wife, from my friends that are CFOs in the real estate realm, that mm-hmm. they have the same issues that I do. We have the same momentum of work. So it's really interesting. To wrap up here, one more question. If you had to give one piece of advice to modern finance leaders, what would it be? One piece of advice, not counting that block an hour a day for yourself. Or it could be that. It could be that. Well, the one thing I tried to, it's two pieces, let's say, but it really ties into one is communication and over-communicate. And I know as a CFO, I can be heavily analytical and a little too blunt when I have a conversation, a little too direct when I have a conversation. So it's really um, reread your emails before you send them communication improvement, as well as transparency and trying to involve as many folks from outside of your realm in your decision-making and thought process. So then you have an easier transition into implementation from thought. So it's really communication is key. That's fantastic. I really want to thank you for all of your time because you're wearing a lot of hats. You're really busy and we really appreciate you to being on the podcast today. And I wish you good luck. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And although my wife may be upset because of the, the, the larger head it's given me now that I'm considered a leader of finance. <laughs> don't let it go to your, don't let it stay in your head. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. It was truly a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.